Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yesterday's concert is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. I think there's like tropes that you fall into. I think everyone has them. You know, Liam Gallagher has one, which is, you know, ah, yeah. And that's basically like rips off John Lennon, you know, it's that sort of blues thing. I think there'll be songs on here where there's melodies that we've not ever touched, but other ones will be reminiscent of like our back catalogue because it's part of like your palette, your, your melody palette, I think. You're always trying not to do that. But you can't help that, you know. It's like saying I don't want to play, like, a G minor chord because I've used a G minor in 10 songs. You can't sort of limit yourself like that. You just have to go with whatever happens, you know. Welcome to Yesterday's Concert, a podcast that celebrates live music. My name is Lance Ingram, and in this episode we talk to James Bagshaw, lead singer and guitarist for the band Temples. We discuss their new album, Exotico, the importance of melodies and being an experimental pop band. Grab your earplugs for melodies that will blow your mind. I'm here with James Bagshaw, singer and guitarist for the band Temples. We're going to discuss their incredible new album, Exotico, soon. But before we do, James, how are you today? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Yeah, yeah, not too bad. Just been playing around in the studio. That's where I'm talking to you right now. So this is where a lot of the Temples stuff of the latter years has been recorded or conceived in this room. Are you you working on Temples 5? Is that what I'm hearing? Is that uh, already Um, in the works? There's stuff on this very on this very computer here that might go on there. I don't know, but there's that weird period in between finishing an album and then waiting for like pressing plants and all the backlog and all that. And we've had this record; we've been sitting on it for quite a while. I don't know, maybe nine months or something. I only really write when I feel like writing. If I come in here and say I'm going to write today, rarely get anything good going. I have to be like, I'll have to want to come in here to record. My point being that I don't want to work on anything right now too much or finish anything because I feel like we haven't released this yet. Yeah, I always worry about writing something that I'm like, oh, shit, this could have been on this album. <laughs> and also you need a breathing space creatively to know what you want to do next. It's a hard one. That's great. No, So we'll get into Exotico soon. We'll talk about a lot of the things you just mentioned. But before we get started, I like to start with some icebreakers just so we can get to know each other, have a little fun. My first question, it's pretty, it's a little late over there where you are right now. So are you a night owl? Not really, no. Um, on tour, you're 
sleep schedule changes definitely but the first nights of touring i usually go bed relatively early and then it gets later and later and then yeah. when i come home i have to then adjust to going back to bed at normal times but no not really i used to be a bit of a night owl certainly in the early days of temples i'd write quite a lot at night but nowadays responsibilities of having your own house and then and a fiance and uh, and a dog and things it's like I try and do my sort of music in the day, really. Every now and then I'll work a little later. But yeah. So you're a working man musician now. You got the nine to five. But yeah, no, it really depends. I've been doing a bit of production on other people's stuff. But yeah, I try not to regiment it too much. Otherwise, it does feel too much like work. And it yeah. doesn't feel like work. But if you're looking at a clock, it does feel like work. On to the second question. Scale of one to ten. How great is the main guitar riff of Daytree? It's brilliant. 10. I was hoping you would say that. Yeah. I'm probably in the interview right now if you said anything less than 10. <laughs> it's just an absolute classic, yeah. So question number three. I know you're a fan of 60s psych rock. What's an underrated 60s psych rock act, in your opinion? A band called The Music Machine. Okay. Tell me about them. I haven't heard of them. Yeah, they're a strange band. They're like a leather-clad, like almost pre-glam rock, 60s garage rock group. The guy's got like a really husky doesn't really fit like within the sort of psychedelic whiny melodic nature it's a bit more punky it's almost like punk before punk but some of my favorite fuzz guitar sounds ever a song called trouble if anyone out there knows exactly what fuzz they used i just I, can't, I still can't find it online i don't i have no idea what fuzz they use but it's just it's amazing and it never gets old so instead of the elusive magic note you're looking for the elusive fuzz tone is that what you're still searching for? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I tried to make a point of that on each record, really, try and discover some kind of new fuzz. Like, I don't think I've ever used like Big Muff or anything, or like, a fuzz face or any of those sort of classic fuzzes, tone benders on any of our records. I think the, maybe the most classic one was is probably like Maestro fuzz tone, which is uh, the Satisfaction fuzz. But I haven't got a real one. I've got someone to make a mind to make one from the circuit. But generally, I'm trying to find fuzz out of all the bits in the studio that aren't fuzz machines, like transistor preamps and things like that. Very cool. So since we, we said underrated, do you want to say an overrated 60s psych rock band? You want to throw oh, somebody man. under the bus? Oh, that's hard. Uh, they're all pretty good, man. I don't know. Like Even the cheesy ones are good. I can't really throw anyone under the bus, no. I love it. That's a good answer. I can appreciate that. So next question. You opened for the Rolling Stones 10 years ago this summer. So is there another behemoth band of that caliber that you would love to open for one day? Yeah. Oh, the Stones is like the Holy Grail because when we played with them, it was the Stones. Charlie was mm -hmm. still around and McCartney, but then it's not. Mm -hmm. it's just Paul McCartney with a bunch of his friends. So it's not the same as playing with a classic band, but I don't know off the top of my head who's still like around. Um, I was about to say, there's not many left anymore. It seems like. Yeah. Speaking of the stones, aftermath or between the buttons, do you have a preference? Neither of those records. If you're going to go through all of the records, but oh. I love Exile on Main Street, but no aftermath, probably that's got some serious hits on it. Hasn't it? It's all good. Yeah. It, even, can't go the wrong. Cheesy, even the cheesy eighties stuff when they put chorus and flanger on everything, it's still the stones. It's well, I appreciate you hearing me out and indulging me on those. I know those are cheesy and just silly, but just a way to get to know each other a little bit better before we get into this conversation. So now I want to talk about your new album Exotico that comes out in April. 
it's fantastic. I just want to say I've, I've listened to it about seven or eight times now and thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. But I want to go back. Tell me the history of the recording process for this album. I want to know kind of like when and where did you start kind of working on this album? Yeah, after releasing Hot Motion, we went on tour, Europe, America, all about really. And then the pandemic hit while we were on tour in Europe. And we turned around the tour bus and drove back from Paris at two o'clock in the morning because we were worried about getting stuck in Portugal where we were heading because everywhere was getting locked down. And we got back and two days later, our country was locked down. And so was a lot of Europe. So we didn't really get to do the proper tour in a Hot Motion. So for a while, we didn't really know what to do because nobody knew what was going on. So it's like, what do we, should we be writing stuff now? Or are we going to be going out on the hot motion tour that we should be doing in three months time? So I'd say that there was probably a good six month period where we weren't writing anything new and we weren't really thinking about it. But then at the same time, we had a track that didn't make hot motion. Basically, we spoke to Sean Lennon about doing something and he produced from his studio. I sent him what I had here and and we finished the song Paraphernalia. And that was a stepping stone of, ah, right, well, that's a new piece of music out in 2020. We We probably need to follow this up now because that's broken up the hot motion thing. This is not on hot motion. So I'd say it started around that time. And usually what we do is we write individually first. So... We'll all just come up with ideas that we have and not really send each other the songs for a while until they feel like they've got something worth showing. We'd start with the individual writing. Once the lockdowns were getting lifted, we'd start sharing the music. We'll bring in music round really here. And I think Adam would go around and see Tom down in Brighton as well at the time. Once we had a collection of probably about 16 songs, we then started working on stuff here. And like fledging out the songs and just seeing where we wanted to go. We had a period then where we decided to get Renz over from Amsterdam and go into a studio and get him to play drums on it. Because at this point it was just my drumming and we wanted him to be on the record. And so we hired this place, this old manor house near Coventry, I think it is, in England. And we went there for two weeks and just blitz loads of drums and bass tracked live together. But along with what we'd recorded here, it gave us so much freedom to go, oh, but there's a grand piano there and we can record that. And, oh, we can do that as well. Yeah, so we got the record sounding pretty good at that point. And then the idea came of we didn't really know what we were missing. There was something missing on it. And we've never really worked with the producer. And so we thought, oh, Sean, maybe we should see if Sean wants to produce this record. We'll give him what we've done so far and see what he thinks. That was when the long thing happened with Sean and then we got into lockdown again so we couldn't go and see him and then we were on zoom calls and he's sitting at a keyboard as in like a Wurlitzer not a, a computer keyboard and we're going oh this could be good like this and maybe the chord there could be this and it was really fun but we weren't getting anywhere because we weren't actually recording it we were just talking about it so months and months went on and then it got to I think March last year We finally got to go over to upstate New York and we spent two weeks there, worked on every single song and finished it all that week, like everything. So yeah, it's a long period of time to make an album, but I feel like there's a lot in that album. There's a lot of diversity of styles, but at the same time, it still has that quote unquote temples sound. You're talking about kind of hot motion, not getting to finish its process. 
how different of an album do you think this would be had you been able to fully tour behind Hot Motion and do everything that you had planned to with? Oh, it's hard to tell. Because then maybe if we hadn't have had the pandemic, we wouldn't have done the thing with Sean. We wouldn't have remotely worked on a track together. Maybe we wouldn't have had time. Maybe he wouldn't have had time. It would have been nice to properly tour that album because a lot of love went into making that. But this record was really fun to make as well. So if not more fun because we got to hang out in the US and we've never made a record like that where you have engineers there as well who know exactly what they're doing. When we're doing stuff here, it always feels like a bodge. I'm tripping over cables and I'm like, oh, fuck, this is broken and the valves need replacing in that. Yeah. But they've got a finely tuned place and it's something that's not set up. It, they'll set it up in 15 minutes. They know exactly what they're doing, which was mind-blowing to me. It felt like NASA or something. The production is very punchy and dynamic. That's one of the kind of... Because I've listened to it on several different sets of speakers and it's a very punchy and dynamic album. How much of an influence was Sean Lennon on that kind of stuff? Or was that more you guys in that area? It's a mixture of both, but Sean has a real keen ear of like when something should be brazen and bolshy and sleazy. And then sometimes when stuff should be more atmospheric and reflective. Like Sean has like lots of ideas and so do we. And sometimes we'd have contradictory ideas, but it was never like volatile. It was like, okay, let's hear that. Let's see what that's like. And equally the other way around, it's, yeah, let's try that. And it'd be like, yeah, that's good. Or that sounds goofy or whatever. But yeah, he has really good understanding of all of his gear and a great understanding of production. So you couldn't help but just be relaxed about the whole approach, even though on paper, it seems weird when you've always produced your own music as a group. Suddenly you're like, oh, like the control is with somebody else. But you know, the opening track, for instance, the demo of that is basically like a wussy version of what it actually is now. It's meant to be bombastic and like heavy. And it never sounded like that until we went over to Sean's and we were in this big studio room with like multiple mics set up, like picking up like the huge room sound, not just using a reverb, using a room to make a sound. It's really interesting. It's one of the things that I picked up when I was listening to it this morning, actually, was like the album openers with Liquid Air into Gamma Rays. That's a one two, that's a heavy one two punch to start the album. Yeah. What was the decision to come out swinging so hard with this album and those two tracks specifically? The funny thing is about Liquid Without Emissions is I didn't want it to be on the album for like ages, and, and, and it was one of my ones. But I was like, this just doesn't, it's just boring. Like, it doesn't really go anywhere. It's, it's, it hasn't really got like a chorus. It hasn't really got, it became such a sort of expansive statement sort of song, even though it's pretty much just pedals on like D for most of the song. To open an album with it, it was the only place it would go because it had mm. such a punch and, and such a sort of swinging groove to it. I think if it was anywhere else in the album, it would feel slow. But because it's the first track, it feels like, it encapsulates the whole world of Exotico, this thing of life in somewhere, and you're, you're hit in the face by the attack of the senses. There, there's several, frankly, heavier tracks on this album, Liquid Air, Cicadas, Meet Your Maker. How much of that was just the world around you? You wrote this mostly during the pandemic when things were hectic and crazy. Was that weighing heavy on y'all when you were writing this? I think, yeah, if not consciously, then subconsciously. I think lyrically, maybe there's very reflective moments in there. There's talking about washing your hands all day and things like that. There is some pandemic references. Nobody wanted to, I don't think anyone wanted to make pandemic records because mm -hmm. 
even though we look back at historic events and if you look at some of the great lyricists, whether it's Dylan or some of the, the punk bands where they're talking about politics or that, you know, it it's like you you get like kudos for that. It's like cool points. It's like, oh man, they're like, my idea of what was happening in America is through the words of Dylan, not through news channels in America. But doing it in the modern, it feels like postmodern to do that it doesn't feel right to reference the time that you're living in it does to other people but for us it we've always been a little bit more it's more mysterious and less like singing about what you're having for breakfast or or some corrupt government or something like that but there's references in there to things like the climate and uh, and then obviously the pandemic is in there but it's people probably wouldn't know it until they hear this podcast i'm not much of a lyrics guy i'm more hear the lyrics but melody and we'll, i kind of want to talk about that with you in a second because i know you are the same way about that a little bit but yeah. the lyrics that i did process they felt very introspective reflective the songs like slow days and oval stones they explored like an existential theme throughout those was that kind of conscious as you were writing it or is it just like a natural outpouring of your emotions as you were writing both i think yeah both sometimes lyrics just come to you as and it feels easy which is Mm -hmm. very rare for me. Fading Actor is a prime example where I had an idea of a story I wanted to tell. And I wrote the whole thing. And I think we changed a couple of the lyrics with Sean. And at the time I was adamant, I was like, I'm not changing any of these lyrics. They're like, every line is as I intended it to be. Whereas most of the time, I'm nah, it can change. If it makes me sing it better, I'll change a couple of those words. But yeah, like Fading Actor was like, I think in many ways, like a bit self-referential, not that I'm an actor, but like that thing of you're creating art and when you're not the new art on the scene, suddenly you're like, oh, what's our place in the sort of the art of music? And so there's that thing of showing up to something and it's, oh, people forgot about guitar music now, that sort of thing. At the time, I didn't feel like I was writing it from my perspective. It was very much about this hypothetical situation and it's like an art gallery opening and this person turns up red carpet and all that and and then they soon realize that they're a guest there they're not it's not about them and i think that's quite poignant i think and that's a commentary on i think the culture of fame as well in answer to your question sometimes it's very conscious and sometimes it's just it just comes out in the same way that melodies do but melodies seem to pour out more than be you don't sit down and write a melody like mathematically, but sometimes lyrics you can write mathematically because you're talking about like rhyme structures and storytelling. It's it follows a bit more of a formula than melody, I think. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said just a second ago. You mentioned that writing is not just the most natural of things for you. You you have to work on it. So for a song like Fading Actor, is that one that you wrote it as you were writing it and processing it? You didn't really understand what it was about or that you didn't understand that you were the character in that, that you were feeling the main character in that, but you came to see it later. Is that something that you feel a lot when you're writing music? Is that you realize later that you were writing about yourself or an experience? Yeah. Like I say, it's, I'd say it's elements of it that are reflecting the way I feel about certain things, but then there is a whole other story in it, which has the character in that song is more, affected by that their ego is more affected by that whereas mine isn't i'm cool with that yeah so it's like a extreme sort of version if you like so it's it is definitely about there's a show in england called it's from like the 90s called jonathan creek it's about this sort of guy that 
he solves these mysteries and he turns up at these, you know, houses and they're like, somebody broke in, but there's no sign of entry. And he figures out, like, by the end of the episode, he replays what's happened. And then you're like, oh, that's what happened. <laughs> and that's how the song actually started. It was about, like, there being something going on in this art gallery and there's some suspicious behaviour. You don't know what's going on. That's what it started out as. But then then changed to be, like, a little bit more, like, this person that feels kind of out of their depth or they're not the big deal anymore. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that thing of having this weird sort of David Lynch type mystery unfolding, but then also this very like true sort of Hollywood failure thing of, oh, you're a has-been. I think it was quite a nice sort of juxtaposition. And I think the melodies tell the story as much as the words in that song. And I remember Sean saying that when the chorus line drops and it's it comes in with the fading actor, he just said that moment it's just it just hits him in a different way. Like it, it just mm-hmm. feels the emotion in it. And so did I writing it. So it's yeah. But I don't think that's gonna be a song that a lot of people are necessarily gonna hear because it's not like a single or anything. It's sad in the modern streaming world where album tracks don't really get as much focus as they would to like the LP market mm-hmm. and people that listen to an album like you have multiple times, whereas it sits in the album at the right place in between the right songs. Let's, you touched on it a second ago. So when you're writing lyrics, is it more about completing the melody or the actual substance of the words? Because it's like I was saying, like to me, melody is just another instrument in the mix. The lyrics are just carrying the melody. I don't pay attention necessarily to what they're saying unless they just really jump out and grab me. So is that kind of yeah. how you feel about it? Is it kind of just you're writing lyrics just to complete the melody? I'd say most of the time, yes. More so maybe like on Hot Motion. What I tend to do now is I come up with a melody and then I put it to Adam and Tom and we work, we find like one line that I've just accidentally sang in the song. I'll just sing a melody and I'll be going, and you stand in the doodle. And then you take one word and you're like, this can be about this. This is what this song feels like. And then we'll come up with a whole story like Hot Motion had no lyrics for that. And then it was this idea of like countdown, like anticipation. And so then that was like Adam's idea of doing like the numbers and counting down. That was to like serve the melody, but there's some good lines and and the chorus works. Hot Motion is a bit sleazy as well. But Shelter Song, like I, I knew what I was trying to say in that song. So I was very connected to those lyrics. Other songs, I'm not as connected to the lyrics, but I'm always connected to the melody. So. Definitely, when I listen, I've listened to your entire discography in the last few days, just piecing things together. And I definitely hear like a distinct melody style to Temple songs, especially on this album, like Cicada and Crystal Hall have a very similar melody when I listen to them. Is that something you're conscious of? Is it maybe just kind of like a melody that you're comfortable with that you fall back onto or in writing Temple songs? I think there's like tropes that you fall into. I think everyone has them. Liam Gallagher has one, which is, ah, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's basically like, it rips off John Lennon. It's that sort of blues yeah. thing. You know, Jagger does it where he's kind of just not really ever singing a melody, mm-hmm. but it's a melody. It's, it's strange. I think there'll be songs on here where there's melodies that we've not ever touched, but other ones will be reminiscent of like our back catalogue because it's a part of like your palette, your melody palette, I think. You're always trying not to do that, but you can't help that. It's like saying, I don't want to play like a G minor chord because I've used a G minor in 10 songs. You can't limit yourself like that. You just have to go with whatever happens. I read in another interview, you said that 
you're not a psychedelic band, that you're an experimental pop band. Do you think this is your most poppy sounding album of the four? I think it has it's has some very pop moments, mm-hmm. yeah. But I wouldn't say it is because it's a bit more it's like a long player. It's you've got these interstitial songs and it's more conceptual as in like we're on this sort of island of exotic. But there is definitely, you know, I think Slow Days is incredibly smooth pop song. Mm-hmm. Well, Gamma Rays is, but it's disguised because it's quite chaotic and, like, up-tempo. But I was thinking about, like, Oval Stones. That one has, like, a distinct indie pop kind of sound to it. It's very pop. It's funny. That was a track that I would have sent through, and I genuinely thought, there's not a chance anyone's going to like this. This is way too... It sounds like the chorus could be, like, Sia or someone, <laughs> who I love as a pop artist. And then it ended up having this kind of... In the verses, it's got this sort of it's got this sort of oriental vibe to it, which is completely accidental. And just some of the sounds sounded like they were oriental instruments, although it's all guitar and wah pedals and things like that. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's our poppiest record, but I think all our records have pop in there, and then you just have the weird stuff as well. You know? Coming from Hot Motions, it's a pretty polar opposite of that because there was correct me if I'm wrong, but there's no sense on hot motion there's a few but not really it's not yeah so this album it's all over the like there's synths all over the album so it's a it feels kind of like a pendulum swing from hot motions is that kind of was that a conscious decision when y'all were writing this album to swing in the other directions of hot motion or was it just a it just happened that kind of happened at sean's because he's got like cs8 is and synths that we've never seen in real life so you can't help but oh we've got to put that on it and that's a part of his sort of sound palette yeah i mean there's certainly songs that time is a light always had the droning guitars and this sort of monotone vocal melody but he took it and made it like 90s it could be underworld or Mm -hmm. someone it's and it's super drum machine that was the last track that we did in the studio and at that point you've got you've had so much guitars and all this stuff you're like we can't make this just a jangly whatever indie song Mm -hmm. this feels like it needs to be more experimental than that and what could be more experimental than just playing with some synths these unpredictable things especially things like cs8 is and yeah listening to your discography chronologically it seems like you have sun structure guitar rock guitar driven volcano which is synthy then you have hot motion which is more guitar rock and then you have this one which is synthy is that kind of just the natural swing of the band to go back and forth between the two? Like, will album number five be more guitar-driven, even though just now putting out four? <laughs> I think it's I think it's important to just be... I don't think we've touched on the fact that we've got real strings on this album, which we've never had. That's a new element as well, having on Cicada and Liquid Without Emissions, that there's real strings on it. And there was on Paraphernalia as well as a standalone song. So that was like a way of bringing in a new element because we've always done it with mellotron strings but I love the way that the way that the beatles use synths like on abbey road and things it was just it was really imaginative because some of the tracks are just like super guitar-y just very beatles guitar sounds and then suddenly you've got this moog doing like this little almost baroque type thing and you're like that in the 60s would have sounded wild it's crazy but now we just we're used to hearing tremolo guitar and then you can hear like, i don't know selena string machine or something the reference i always like to think of when i worry about oh this is just this is too much traditional instruments or this is too much like gary newman is i think of the band air 
because I feel like they they do a fantastic blend of having something that's synthy, but then you've got like purity of the real bass own parts, the sort of Hoffner sound. So I think like I always try and think of them when I get worried about oh this is too synthy or this is too traditional mm-hmm. because they blend both of those worlds together. I think the track Exotico is a really good example of that. Lots of nods to a lot of influences in that song. There's a lot of lush sounds in your music and especially on this record. Is that something that you go in envisioning what that sounds and you're looking for that sound or is it more hey we got all these fun toys in the studio let's make something sound crazy and we'll put that down it's quite you can imagine where the sound sits in the song a lot of the time i find whether something should be super in your face and dry and then you know when something should be in the background and ethereal and so you just make that cool like it's very instinctive it's kind of like putting paint on a canvas but in an impressionist way it's you're approximating what you imagine it, it could be and when you know your equipment, that's almost easier. If you said to me you wanted a particular sound, I'd probably be able to get it here because I know the limitations of what I have and I know its strengths. But going to Sean's, it's like playing on one of these synths where I'm like, oh, it's definitely got to be that synth. And then you play it and you're like, no, this synth doesn't do that. You know, it's I can only play two notes to make a two-note chord and... I can't, it's not polyphonic, so I can't do that. Whereas I've used like the software of it and then handle it with that. So there's a mixture of those things. But sometimes you just stumble across a sound and you're like, this would work. I wasn't thinking about that sound, but now that we've got that, let's try it. And you get some really interesting sounds like that. Yeah. Yeah, I think Tom had an idea of putting a piano, micing the piano up, but then sending the microphone into a wah pedal and then just half cocking the wire pedal so that you got this sort of very like nasal sound like that. And then you get this sort of weird like lo-fi gramophone piano sound. So there's a lot of little things like that we just played around with in the studio, which was really fun. And we had the time to do it. We don't have the time to do that here because it's usually I've got to get on the train home or whatever. But I read that cicadas was actually inspired by the actual sound of the insect. So how much do the daily sounds that we hear in life inspire you when you head into the studio yeah i think they probably do at sean's place you're in like the wilderness so you don't really hear any traffic or anything so you can't help but want to make noise let's say because you've had just like quiet night on one of the tracks we were here and it was uh, on time is a light there's a little breakdown after the first chorus and we were recording maybe some vocals in here and it started raining and i don't really have the best roof in here so it was really heavy rain i just left it recording and then maybe we just leave that in and like it's such a moment on that song where it all goes super like spacey i think you have the sound of the rain but it's it's not a a sample of the rain it's it was when we were recording it that's what happened so we put it in so yeah it's that's how influential the sound around us can be you know that it's in the recording (laughs) that's cool you got for you guys you get talked a lot about the psychedelic sound side of your music. But the one thing that I was coming across and connecting to on this new album, especially was like the glam side. Like I really connected to the more glammy aspects of this album. Am I just making that up? No, absolutely. it's always in there. I think that's another one of our 
tropes. Because, I mean, you mentioned Sean Lennon's, like, more sleazy approach on some, like, sleazy rock kind of sound on some of those songs. So is that, was that more his hand or was that kind of Temple's hand on making the more glam sounds? I think a mixture of both. The funny thing is, when we played Desert Days a couple of years back, a few years back, and Sean was playing with Les Claypool in the Lennon Delirium, we were chatting backstage for probably half an hour just about the glam rock drum sound and the glam rock like guitar sounds. Mm -hmm. So it's apparent for all of us in Temples and Sean, that's something that's just a part of our, once again, our sound palette. So you had elements of that in in psych rock anyway. There's, there's something glammy about the track Rainbow Chaser by like Nirvana, but not grunge Nirvana. They're in the same world anyway, but glam rock's just a little bit more, I guess, bluesy usually. It's a little bit more simple. When you're talking about T-Rex, you're talking about not that many chords, you know. We all love that, so you've always got to get it in there. And I mean, I know like aesthetic and appearance is a big part for you guys. Like I know you had a you have a heavy hand in a lot of the album artwork and things like that. So can you tell me about the album cover? Yeah, it's a guy called Tom First. Yeah, he was he was in the band The Horrors from the UK. And I think he he's now doing art full time. He does something, it's like AI art that he's got like this supercomputer that he's he knows how to work this shit. I don't know how <laughs> it works. Um, but basically we had an idea of, we wanted to have songs that were like very like pure in the very tactile way. And then we thought it'd be nice to have a front cover that looks, it's a sort of painting, almost like a Bosch or meets the colours of David Hockney or something. This sort of a piece of fine art that you've never seen before, mm-hmm. but created with new technology. So the juxtaposition between having the rawness of what's happening on the album and then having this sort of, this other thing that's very digital. And it felt like a nice sort of, yeah, juxtaposition, really. Yeah. It took a while for us to find a cover that we agreed on. As you can imagine with that stuff, it's limitless how many options you can have. Whereas if you get... <laughs> David Hockney to paint you an album cover. You don't say, I don't really like the colour of the sea on that. No, he's just, this is what it is. Yeah. That's what you get, unless you want to pay me loads of money to spend another two months making an album cover yeah. for you. So as we kind of start to wrap up, you did a run of shows in early February where I'm assuming you road tested a lot of these songs? Uh, yes, yeah. Only two of them. Oh, yeah. Okay, why the decision to only do two of them rather than eight of them? Because they're not out, so we didn't want to spoil it. I genuinely still think, and especially in this day and age, that people should hear the recorded version first. I think it's the same thing as really you shouldn't watch a making of a movie before you watch the movie. And I made that terrible mistake with Del Toro's Pinocchio. I watched the making of before I watched the film, and I found the making of so fascinating that when I started watching the film, it felt really slow-paced because... All I was thinking was about, God, it took them ages to shoot this bit and all that stuff that they had to do. I don't want to see people reacting off a live video before they've heard the recorded version. You also lose the sequencing of the album as well. And I think a lot of these songs, several of them seek right into each other. But I think losing the sequencing on a lot of these tracks is going to affect people's takes on these. Like I, I read people's perceptions of cicadas and gamma rays, like the singles. And when I hear it's a completely different experience when I hear it in the concept of the album and the sequence that you've laid out. Yeah. So I think you're dead on that there's an importance to 
hearing these things as they were intended to be heard, which is in the sequence that y'all have laid out. And I'm assuming painstakingly laid out and figured out which out which song comes which. Yeah, definitely. That took a while. And because it's a double LP, there's one thing that we couldn't squeeze a particular song. It was between Crystal Hall and Head in the Clouds, or Head in the Clouds, Crystal Hall. Really, that should be on the same side because it, it should feed into that song because mm-hmm. it's almost like a part of that song. And I got the test pressing through and I had to turn over to get to that next track. And I was like, shit. And I was like, it's too late to do anything about this. How did we not think about this? So I think it's four tracks across two LPs. So that's like the only one thing I changed. But we can do a deluxe and we'll do some how it should be, where it plays through those two yeah. songs. Because it fades out and fades back in. So it's just weird. But maybe that's, we can just pretend that's, it's meant to be jarring. No, that's exactly, I don't know what you're talking about. That's exactly how you guys intended it. So that's just how people should listen to it now. So you haven't heard the LP, so you haven't experienced it, but you'll see when you get it, you'll laugh because you'll be like, huh, this should, I've heard the tracks like fade seamlessly into that. There we go. When I listen to it streaming, it's a fantastic album and thoroughly enjoyed listening to it start to finish. It really is. It's cohesive and I understand just the arc of it and they're, the first time especially i was listening to it i was like oh i want to talk about that song oh i want to talk about that song and it just kept happening i was like all right we're just going to talk about the whole album we're not going to pull anything out because it really is i enjoy all of it so i commend you guys for making a stellar album thank you man that means a lot thank you so last question live shows what's in the future what's on the deck for temples this year you put out the album in april what's after that yeah, I think April we're doing a run of shows at some record shops in England. And that's where we start, really. And then we're just in the process of booking, I think it's four weeks in the US, hitting a lot of places, quite a few places we haven't been as well. But our tour manager is like trying to figure out routing and all that stuff at the moment. And we have to hold tight for us to announce that. But and then like Europe, UK, hopefully we'll get back over to Asia and get to Japan again. But yeah, and then festivals as well. Just whatever offers we get, we'll see. I don't know yet. Hopefully Glastonbury, but we haven't confirmed that. And it'd be nice to be back over playing some American festivals. We had some great times playing Coachella before maybe it's the Coachella it is now. But that was fun. Lollapalooza and Austin City Limits. Like hopefully... Maybe if not this year, then maybe next year. But It just sounds like you're going to be really busy is what I'm hearing. Yeah, it looks like that. I had a conversation with my fiance earlier, just looking at the diary and figuring out like when we can have a holiday because we haven't had a holiday since before the pandemic. And I think May, maybe. <laughs> so there is time off. It's not it's not like touring was in 2014 and 15. I think it's changed since the pandemic for a lot of people, the way that people tour now. You can't like really, unless you're like a huge act, I don't know, Harry Styles, you can't really block out two years to tour constantly, but we'll do what we can do. James, I appreciate your time today. Like I said, Exotico is fantastic. I encourage everyone to listen to it. So thanks so much for your time today. Nice one. Lovely to chat. Yeah. Thanks for listening to another episode of Yesterday's Concert. Thoughts? Similar experiences? Disagree? Let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. Or you can email us at info at yesterdaysconcert.com. If you're feeling kind, give us a review on Apple Podcast. Otherwise, until next time, give us a subscribe, check out our website, yesterdaysconcert.com, and most importantly, take care of your shoes.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.